Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 92, Wearables as a Platform. Hi, I'm Neil. Two months ago, we talked about the changing tech landscape where battle lines are going to be redrawn. The best way of viewing these battles is to look at the most valuable real estate in our life, our home, our transportation, and our body. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at that last battle, body. And of course, we're talking about the wearables industry. Over the past few months, there has been such a significant amount of change occurring in the wearables industry. I think it's safe to say there has been a sea change. There is a new leader in wearables, and it's Apple. And I think what we have to do is begin to think about wearables in a different way. It is no longer enough to just think of this as standalone devices for the wrist. It's much more. Instead, wearables, it's going to be all about the platform. It's going to be about companies coming up with a number of products designed for different parts of the body. And I think we're starting to see the early stages of what this market truly looks like. I think Apple has the advantage. Now, of course, there's going to be risk. There's going to be issues that Apple has to navigate. And we're going to talk about some of those in today's episode. Historically, whenever someone talked about wearables, they referred to two items, health and fitness trackers and smartwatches. So both items were targeting the wrist. Now, back in episode 84, the elephant in the smartwatch room, we did a deep dive into the smartwatch market. And I don't think since that episode there's been a significant amount of change pertaining to smartwatches. So if you want a little bit more color on the smartwatch market, I would recommend going back to episode 84. In this episode, I think we have to focus more on that interaction between health and fitness trackers and smartwatches, because I think that is where all of the change is occurring. When we look at the major players and wearables, there are only two companies that come to mind, Fitbit and Apple. Those are the two companies that are selling wearables and volume. Now, if you take a look at some of these industry reports that come out that track wearables, market share, or unit sales, you probably would come out with a very different conclusion because those reports show a number of companies shipping wearables and volume. And they actually show that quite a few wearables in total are being shipped these days. And you'll say to yourself, well, wait a second, that was just Fitbit and Apple. What's going on? Well, those reports are doing something that I don't agree with. They are including companies that are shipping very cheap plastic wristbands that count steps and track your sleep. I don't include those devices in this discussion, in my analysis. If you look at the early years of the smartphone era, there was a reason why you don't compare smartphones to feature phones. In a very similar way, I don't think we should be comparing smartwatches and Fitbit health and fitness trackers to these $10 or $15 wristbands. Over time, that could change. These companies may start introducing products with more utility, and we could start giving more credibility to those companies. But at this point, it's really just Fitbit and Apple. They are selling wearables in volume, and maybe one way we could think of this is they're actually bringing in revenue. All these other companies, they're not having that much revenue when you're shipping $10 wristbands. Now, in terms of unit sales and revenue, there's been a divide. Fitbit, with its assortment of health and fitness trackers, 
has typically outsold Apple Watch when it comes to unit sales. However, given Apple Watch's much higher selling price, Apple has had the edge in terms of revenue. Before we go any further, I did want to mention something about estimates, because we're probably going to be talking about Apple Watch sales shortly. All Apple Watch estimates come from me. They come from above Avalon and my earnings model. I'm taking what Apple reports in terms of overall financials. I'm adding Apple management commentary regarding Apple Watch, putting that in my model. And that's how I'm deriving Apple Watch estimates. If you're interested in learning more about that process, I'll have more information at the end of the episode. These numbers are increasingly different than the Apple Watch numbers you see from industry reports that come out that talk about overall wearable sales. I'm increasingly having issues with those reports because I think that their methodology is off when it comes to measuring Apple Watch sales. Sometimes the numbers are too high. Sometimes the numbers are too low. When you take a look at these industry reports, notice how a lot of them come out only after Apple reports earnings. There's a reason for that. Apple is one of the few companies that actually gives numbers like iPhone unit sales and iPad unit sales. Those companies, I don't think they have a proper way of measuring those numbers. Instead, they wait till Apple reports, they take the iPhone unit sale, put it into their own report, and then publish. There's no way you can verify all the other numbers because no other companies report unit sales. We don't know how many phones Samsung's selling. We don't know how many phones a lot of these Chinese brands are selling. But we know how many phones Apple sells. We don't get that situation with Apple Watch because Apple doesn't disclose Apple Watch sales. So all of these industry firms, they're estimating Apple Watch sales. They don't have a magical way of estimating how many people go to apple.com to buy an Apple Watch. They don't know how many people are going to Apple stores to buy an Apple Watch. So those numbers, I don't think they're accurate. And we're starting to get to the point where Apple management commentary is usually referring back to older quarters. What I mean by that is Tim Cook recently said that Apple just reported record Apple Watch sales. Well, you need to know what previous quarters were to know what the record is. And we're getting into that situation where if you have bad Apple Watch estimates to begin with, and you're using that to go forward to come up with new estimates, your numbers are just going to be way off. And I think this is a big problem. It's not just with smartwatches, but it's going to be an even bigger problem, I think, with AirPods and with other wearables. So it's just something to keep in mind. Wherever possible, I'm relying on my own model, my own estimates, because I can control the methodology. I can control the assumptions that are included in that. And to be quite frank, I think I do a better job at tracking what Apple management says, putting into my model, and making sure that all of the pieces actually match. So that's just one disclaimer about whenever we talk about Apple Watch estimates, they are coming from me. So turning back to our discussion, so we had Fitbit and Apple. Those are the two leaders in wearables. The major theme from 2016 was that Apple rethought its Apple Watch strategy. In the beginning, the Apple Watch was positioned as a mini iPhone on the wrist. Now we have management shifting more of the marketing towards health and fitness. We also have a lower entry-level price for Apple Watch, and the product line has expanded. 
Now, a lot of those changes, in my view, were made in order to go up against Fitbit. Why? Because Fitbit was outselling Apple Watch. That's very important to keep in mind. So when you look at all these changes that were occurring in 2016, we had, again, WWDC 2016, WatchOS 3. We had the new Apple Watches in September. It looked like the ingredients were coming into place for a very interesting holiday quarter for wearables. We were going to have Apple versus Fitbit. And I think the key question on everyone's mind was, would Apple be able to entice consumers to move towards smartwatches and kind of forget about these dedicated health and fitness trackers. Because again, if you look at the difference between the two, with a smartwatch, you get health and fitness tracking, but you also get so much more. And that's added utility that you don't find with dedicated health and fitness trackers. However, in November, we got a surprise. It was courtesy of Fitbit. The company was seeing declining customer demand for its products. This was beginning in the third quarter, 2016, and it was continuing into October. Now, if you're a consumer electronics company, that is something you do not want to see. The holiday quarter is the most important quarter. You want a fresh product line, and you want inventory. That way, you can ship product. That way, when people go to a store, when people go online buying gifts, they have product to buy. You don't want to be dealing with declining customer demand in October. So Fitbit was caught off guard. They had to issue extremely weak financial guidance for the holiday season. Everyone was surprised. More worrying, it didn't seem like Fitbit knew what was going on. This is a company that I think on some level, they've seen so much success in terms of building their brand, in terms of getting into so many people's minds when it comes to health and fitness tracking. Yet, they really have had trouble understanding the wearables market. This is a company that has never publicly viewed Apple as a competitive threat. I find that surprising. I find that shocking. Even though Fitbit management lowered expectations for the holiday quarter, they still ended up disappointing Wall Street. They had a pre-announced an awful quarter, so it's even worse than expected. Basically, the company hit a brick wall in terms of sales growth. Demand for Fitbit products completely evaporated at the end of the year. We are talking about a 20% decline in unit sales for the holiday quarter. One year earlier, Fitbit saw 55% growth. That type of decline and just how it occurred so suddenly was even worse than Fitbit bears were expecting. I think the people who were pessimistic about Fitbit, they thought it would take a couple of years for Fitbit really to start losing its growth potential and start hurting at the hands of Apple and other competitors. It occurred in the span of a couple months. It was quite shocking. Unfortunately for the broader wearables market, Fitbit's struggles ended up being a black eye because a lot of people, especially those in the tech press, they were seeing Fitbit come out with bad guidance, a bad pre-announcement. They saw sales growth was slowing and they assumed that this must be happening across the board in the wearables industry. I saw a headline saying, wearables are dead. Okay, December 2016, a major news site saying wearables are dead. The reality is very different. While Fitbit was seeing weakening customer demand, other wearable players, they are seeing more positive results. Apple, record Apple watch sales in the fourth quarter 2016. Both Fossil and Garmin, 
pointed to promising smartwatch trends during the fourth quarter. I did go through both of those companies' fourth quarter results for above Avalon members. So if you want more information on their earnings, that is available. Garmin even described a scenario where robust smartwatch demand was offsetting weak health and fitness tracker demand. So Garmin was basically repeating the same thing that Fitbit was talking about. It seemed like people were moving away from dedicated health and fitness trackers and instead embracing smartwatches. Again, all of this took place just during the holiday quarter. Now, if we take a closer look at some of the numbers, I do think this shift in customer preference regarding health and fitness, it becomes very apparent. Over at AboveAvalon.com, in the article that I published this week, I have a couple exhibits that track Fitbit sales over time versus Apple Watch sales over time. And when you look at the past holiday quarter, Apple Watch came very close to outselling Fitbit. During the fourth quarter, Fitbit sold 6.5 million devices. Average selling price was $85. I estimate Apple sold 5.6 million Apple Watches at an average selling price of around $370. So that's a pretty close gap. If you go back one year earlier, during the holiday season 2015, Fitbit actually outsold Apple Watch by 1.7 times. So that's a significant year-over-year difference. But if you look a little bit closer at the numbers, a couple things pop out. The first is Apple was not able to meet Apple Watch demand during the quarter. We know this because Apple Watch Series 2 was still supply-constrained. This is another way of saying that Apple could have shipped a few more watches if they were able to manufacture them. At the same time, Fitbit had elevated inventory levels. Why? Well, they were preparing for a very busy holiday season. Instead, customer demand fell off a cliff. So they spent most of the holiday season trying to reduce their inventory. On a sell-through basis, so that's excluding all these inventory changes and Apple Watch Series 2 supply issues, I actually think Apple Watch and Fitment Demand, they were very close. I would say it's neck and neck. That is interesting. Now, some of you may be saying, well, wait a second here. Fitbit had an awful quarter. Customers turned away from health and fitness, apparently. It's still outsold Apple Watch. So wouldn't that mean that Fitbit retained the title of best-selling wearables company over the holiday? It may seem like that. However, there is one missing piece to the discussion. The definition of wearables has changed. It's no longer just about wrist wearables. It's no longer just about health and fitness trackers and smartwatches. During the holiday quarter, we saw Apple introduce its second wearables product, AirPods. Now, we've talked about AirPods in the past. We have episode 85, AirPods and the Battle for Our Ears. That episode includes a few of my impressions from using the device. So I think that's probably the most relevant episode if you want more information on AirPods. It's a very big deal for Apple. When you look at the sales potential for something like AirPods, it's significant. 
We're not talking hundreds of thousands of units per year. We are talking tens of millions of units per year. So after a two-month delay, Apple began selling AirPods in mid-December. A lot of people were wondering, well, why do this? It was so close to the holidays, just wait until January, and then they could ship a lot of AirPods. Apple didn't want to do that. Apple figured they have enough supply to actually get through a launch. They're going to do it before the holidays. They want to get the AirPods that they have out into customers' hands. So that's why they launched in mid-December. It's late, yes. They miss sales during the holidays, yes. There's no question about that. Yet, I do think they were able to ship a decent number of these devices. I don't think that they just shipped 100,000 units or 200,000 units. I estimate Apple shipped 1 million AirPods in December across those first two weeks. The reason being is when you look at the availability of AirPods, it was actually better than I thought. I was expecting something like Apple Pencil, where you could not get your hands on this product for two months. It wasn't like that. It was actually, certainly wasn't easy to get your hands on AirPods, but it wasn't impossible. Of course, if you waited a couple of days, then it was a whole other story. But I think Apple sold 1 million AirPods during those last two weeks of December. If we take the 1 million AirPods, combine them with the 5.6 million Apple Watches sold, I think Apple sold 6.6 million wearable devices during the fourth quarter, 2016. That would exceed Fitbit for the very first time. This is why I think Apple is the new leader in wearables. The interesting thing here is that I think demand for these Apple wearables was a whole lot higher. AirPods supply was severely constrained. It still is. Apple Watch Series 2 supply was severely constrained. I would not be surprised if total demand for these products probably would have been 8 to 9 million units during the holiday quarter. That's 60% more than a number of Macs that Apple sold during the same time. That's 65% of total iPad unit sales. It is only a matter of time before Apple's wearable sales exceed iPad sales. And so for those who think that wearables will never amount to much for Apple, this past holiday season is a wake-up call that wearables represent one of the best growth engines for Apple when you're looking at unit sales, when you're looking at device sales. It's a very big deal. Now, the broader point that is being made here when we say that Apple is the new leader in wearables is that the wearables industry is becoming a platform play. We saw Apple begin to make this narrative during its last conference call back at the end of January, its first quarter 2017 earnings. Here's Tim Cook describing the new narrative. With AirPods off to a fantastic start, a strong full first year for Apple Watch, and Beats headphones offering a great wireless experience using the Apple-designed W1 chip, we now have a rich lineup of wearable products. Their design, elegance, and ease of use make us very excited about the huge growth potential for wearables going forward. Notice what Tim Cook just said. He's introducing the idea of Apple having a wearables platform consisting of a number of devices. This isn't just about Apple Watch. I think the wearables industry is rapidly turning into a platform play. 
What that means is the companies that will get the most value from wearables, the companies with the most potential for success, they will be the ones offering a range of wearable devices. It is not going to be enough to just sell something for the wrist. It's not going to be enough to just sell something for the ears or maybe down the road, something for the eyes. Instead, the platform will matter. I have a diagram over at AboveAvalon.com that does put all this together. The wearables industry is basically four buckets. Wrist, ears, eyes, and body. At this point, there's only two battles going on. The wrist and the ears. We haven't seen the battle for the body, which I think is clothing. And we also haven't seen much of a battle for eyes, which I still think is primarily an R&D project at this point. But because we have both wrists and ears, I think it is official that we have to start thinking of wearables as a platform and not just simply smartwatches or health and fitness trackers. Taking a look at the current landscape, Apple has a significant lead here. They're the only company playing in at least two wearables geographies at scale, the wrist and the ears. The other players in wrist, Fitbit, Garmin, Fossil, they don't have a solution for ears. Samsung does, but there's no evidence to suggest that they're actually shipping that product in volume. Apple's the only company. And I think what's going on is that a lot of people, they're underestimating the benefit that can flow to Apple by having control over a wearables platform. Take a look at the iPhone install base. The combination of strong loyalty and high satisfaction have resulted in very low churn. So that's another way of saying that once you become an iPhone user, there is a very good likelihood that you will remain an iPhone user. Yes, the upgrade rate may be slowing, so that means that you hold on to your iPhone for longer. But the point is, when you're in the market for another iPhone upgrade, you're probably going to buy another iPhone. That same mentality will apply to wearables. If Apple has... 20 million satisfied Apple Watch owners. That's 20 million people that are that much more likely to buy Apple's next wearables product, wireless AirPods. This really does have the makings of being a type of snowball effect where as we go forward and Apple introduces more wearables products and the Apple Watch, the wireless AirPod install base grows, you're going to have this impact where it's going to become very difficult for a competitor to compete against this. Even if your standalone wrist device, which again, probably won't be enough. You need a platform. But let's just say your standalone device actually is better than the Apple Watch, according to something like technology or a couple features. I don't think it's going to be enough. Because from a consumer perspective, they're not going to look at it as just a standalone device. They're going to look at it as a piece of the wearables puzzle. So if you have an Apple Watch, you have wireless AirPods, you have two other wearables products from Apple, what is the likelihood that you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to stop using my Apple Watch and instead buy this brand new Garmin? I don't think that's likely. And I think competitors, they understand this a little bit. And that's why you do see Fitbit making a lot of changes to its strategy. And this probably will be the last topic for today, the changing competition in wearables. 
I think Fitbit understands that its current trajectory is not looking too good. You listen to Garmin. You listen to Fossil. These are companies that understand they need to move now. They need to get their devices on people's wrist today. They cannot wait two or three years because here you have Apple. They're going to sell 10 million Apple Watches at a minimum per year. We are starting to go towards 20 million. You need to act now or you're going to start to really be behind when it comes to actually figuring out how do we get a platform off the ground. Now, when you look at what's going on in terms of changing consumer preference, I think the major theme here is that people are indeed gravitating towards greater utility on the wrist. I really do think that if we go out five to 10 years and look back at this period, we're going to laugh that there even was a debate on whether people would actually want utility on the wrist. The answer is going to be yes, they do. And what we're starting to see is that people are beginning to want to pay up more for that additional utility, for that additional functionality. I think these dedicated health and fitness trackers, they are starting to look more and more like all of those cheap MP3 players at the beginning of the iPod era. People were buying them, not in volume, but they were buying them. But eventually, they started to say, you know what? I want to pay a little bit more and buy an iPod. Either the reliability wasn't there, the quality just wasn't there, they were breaking. As just an example, whenever I talk about Fitbit in the daily emails to above Avalon members, I always get responses from people who detail their story about how Fitbit quality just isn't there. They have to replace their device multiple times and eventually they just give up. And so I think that is a theme that is going to continue to play out over time, where low quality, cheap products, they may have gotten some sales in the beginning, but I think people are going to want to pay up more for utility. It really does come down to that simple theme. When we take a look at Fitbit's growing struggles, I do think we could get a new perspective on how competition will unfold in the wearables market. I don't think the only battle here is between wearables companies. I don't think it's just between Apple and Garmin. It's not between Apple and Fitbit. The true competition is actually between wearables and non-wearables. Apple is competing for the same wrist real estate as legacy watchmakers, jewelry companies, and bare wrist. That is who Apple is competing against. The same thing applies for the ears. It's not that Apple will be competing with Samsung and their wireless headphones. It's that Apple is competing for all of those ears that don't have headphones in them. So if we take this new way of thinking about competition and then look at Fitbit's strategy, I think we could identify what is going wrong with Fitbit. The company misidentified its competition. Fitbit didn't look at the bare wrist out there or the non-wearables as the competition because if that was the case, I think Fitbit would push much further and faster up market than they did. We can look at capability, functionality. I think they sort of kind of were resting on their idea that people just want dedicated health and fitness trackers. That's what people want. They assumed their competition was multi-purpose smartwatches that was selling for hundreds of dollars. 
So in Fitbit's mind, well, that's a different market. We're not sharing the same target market with that. I think that's why they never really recognized Apple as a competitor. They figured Apple can do that market. We're going to do the other market. In reality, what was going on was, A, the pricing gap between dedicated health and fitness trackers and smartwatches, they were shrinking. So I do think those two companies were increasingly chasing after the same group. But more importantly, I don't think Fitbit was focused on how do you get your product on the wrist of people who don't have anything on their wrist. The answer isn't just greater marketing. But instead, you need to focus on how do you sell utility to people who never have had utility on their wrist. I think at the end of the day, Fitbit got caught with an inadequate product line. It just wasn't resonating with consumers the way it did in 2015. This would explain why Fitbit has decided to reduce its product line in 2017. So it's going to cut down on the number of dedicated health and fitness trackers and instead go to market with a new smartwatch. They probably should have done that in 2016 at the latest. They were late. Turning to Apple and what this new type of competition means for the company. Apple is placing a very big bet on wearables. It was clear in 2015. I think it became clear in 2016. And you're going to get even more evidence of this big bet in 2017. Apple management is completely on board with wearables. The company's industrial design group is completely on board with wearables. In fact, the design group has been moving towards wearables for years. We cannot underestimate the number of lessons that Apple learned from building iPhones for the past 10 years, working with its contract manufacturers and its contract assemblers. That's a big deal. And there's not too many companies out there who have that kind of experience. And I think it's going to resonate when Apple comes out with smaller, more personal devices. When you take a look at the wearable segment as a whole, in 2016, there were approximately 50 million wearable devices shipped. As a reminder, that does not include all of the cheap step and sleep trackers. When you look at tablets, there were 175 million of those shipped during 2016. There were 1.5 billion smartphones shipped last year. I think it's only a matter of time before wearables outsell tablets. And that sales gap between wearables and smartphones, it's going to shrink over the coming years. And I think it's going to surprise quite a few people. As you mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, the body represents a new battleground in tech. When you compare the body to transportation in a home, I think Apple actually has one of the better advantages found with wearables because of its heritage with manufacturing, with materials, as well as its ability to control software, hardware, and services. With all of that said, I do think it's important to point out that Apple still face risk and challenges in the wearables market. And nowhere do we see this more than with the area of adoption. Apple needs to make sure that with each one of these new wearables products, that it focuses on continuous refinement year after year in order to add utility to these devices. Because again, the challenge for Apple is to go after all of those risks that don't have anything on them. To go after all of those people who maybe just be using wired earpods or no headphones at all. 
looking out a few years, I think the challenge for Apple will be found with the relationship between wearables and smartphones. We're going to get to the point where consumers will want to give wearables more power and more control over their life. Essentially, they want to give wearables a greater level of independency. And so the question is, will Apple be in a position to allow that? Will the Apple Watch have the utility, have the functionality that makes that possible? I think that's going to be a big question. And again, it's not going to be just found with Apple Watch. We could look at wireless AirPods in the same way. I'm sure Apple is going to come out with new wearable form factors going forward for different parts of the body. And the same discussion is going to come up. This doesn't mean that people will necessarily move away from the iPhone or that the iPhone loses value. And I actually think Apple probably has a pretty good strategy for how it could give continued value to the iPhone in terms of augmented reality, where that camera found on your iPhone, it's going to become very valuable going forward. But the question is the interaction between wearables and smartphones. That's going to be the key. I think we still need quite a bit of R&D in the area to get to where I think this is headed. We're not there yet. We're not ready. It's a risk for Apple. But at the same time, I think it's an opportunity. Because by that point, Apple could have hundreds of millions of wearables out in the wild. That's going to do it for today's episode. As we talked about earlier, if you want more information on my Apple Watch sales estimates, including my methodology as to how I derive those estimates, all of that is available for above Avalon members. The same applies to Fitbit earnings, Fossil earnings, and Garmin earnings. So if you want more detail on all of the moving pieces, I do track those companies from the perspective of Apple because I do think that they are the most relevant in the wearables space. In addition, I do plan on updating my Apple Watch sales estimates for fiscal year 2017 and fiscal year 2018, given everything that we talked about in this episode and the weekly article over at AboveAvalon.com. Those new estimates will be published in the daily email and sent to Above Avalon members. So you could keep an eye out for that if you're a member. If you're not a member and will like this information, becoming a member is extremely easy. You could just head on over to AboveAvalon.com. Membership is $10 per month or $100 per year. The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is a daily email that's focused just on Apple. So we'll talk about everything from financial analysis, to the products, current news events, what competitors are doing. If it matters to Apple, it's something that we talk about. For example, a few days ago, I did revise my 2017 and 2018 iPhone sales estimates, so I dedicated a daily email just to that topic. We went over the methodology that I use to obtain those estimates. We also talked about the iPhone install base, where I think that stands as of the end of the first quarter, 2017. And then we talked about unit sales. So all of that was in one daily email. There is an archive available so you can go back and read previous daily emails. And there is an Above Avalon team in Slack available for members. So if that's something that you're interested in, communicating with other members, talking about some of the stories that are found in the daily emails, that is available. Above Avalon is 100% supported by its members. So thank you in advance if you're thinking about becoming a member. If you enjoy the Above Avalon podcast, if you can leave a rating or review for it in iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. And for those who listen to this podcast in Overcast, in this episode, if you click the little I button for more information and then press recommend, that really does help. Thank you in advance. 
with that, we are going to conclude our discussion for today. I will talk to you all next week. Bye.